This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those with, whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. You can say good morning. That's good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I don't think there's a better way to start the sermon this morning than with C.S. Lewis. This is from chapter 8 in his book, Mere Christianity. The chapter's called The Great Sin. And he writes this, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Any guess as to which of the deadly sins we're on to this morning? Anybody pride? Yeah, it was not that hard of a question. It's in the bulletin. It was in the scripture readings. It's not that difficult. But yes, that's right. It's pride this morning. And Lewis continues. He says, I'm talking about pride. The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, interestingly, when doing a cursory look at what people say about pride, there's not universal agreement about it being a vice. Maybe even half of what the world says about pride is that we should have it. Pride is seen as a good thing, something to be developed, relished, cultivated. Commentator Will Willimans observes that if you're not attempting to be a Christian, I can't imagine why you would be troubled by your sense of pride. If there is no God, then pride can be a healthy, creative response to the emptiness of the world. And yet, more than ever, we hear the term narcissism thrown around. Remember the story of Narcissus? It's from Greek mythology. He was a good-looking kid. Everybody had a crush on. 
And upon seeing his reflection in a pool of water, he became so enamored with himself, not knowing that it was himself, that he stopped eating and drinking, wasting away until he died. His love of himself was the death of him. I did see somebody call Narcissus the father of the selfie this week. Uh, So that's something for you to ponder this afternoon. Narcissus is the father of the selfie. These days, it seems everybody's favorite critique is to call somebody a narcissist. As Lewis said, pride, this out-of-proportion self-love, this narcissism, is something that everybody in the world can't stand when we see it in someone else, yet hardly anyone ever imagines that they are guilty of it themselves. We see pride in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. We might be told we need to embrace and love and take pride in who we are, but then in the same breath, we turn around, we label, and we deride people as narcissists. So pride is a bit of a pickle. Josh has been breaking it down each week like this. What is the sin? What does it do? And what's its remedy? So I'm going to rip off that same outline this morning. We're going to look at what pride is, what pride does, and then what's the antidote or the remedy. So what is pride? We'll use this as our working definition of pride. Love for self, magnified out of healthy proportion, and twisted into condescension toward others. That's a mouthful. Love for self, magnified out of healthy proportion, and twisted into condescension toward others. If you've got a little kid in the house, you've probably, you're probably tired of hearing the phrase, me first. Me first. I recall reading a book, um, the storybook with that title, Me First, quite a bit when the girls were little. It was in our regular rotation. Maybe it's because we heard that so much. There's this prideful little selfish pig who's a Boy Scout, and there's a witch that tricks him. It's quite a classic. You should check it out. But pride says, me first, me only. I'm the most important person in the room. Love for self that is out of healthy proportion and twisted into condescension toward others. Back to C.S. Lewis, he writes this, pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. If I'm a proud man, then, as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Comparison is the tool of pride. For example, in his book, Messy Spirituality, Mike Iaconelli tells the story of sitting with a woman that he highly respected who spent most of her life in prayer and silence and solitude and leading prayer retreats. And they were talking about prayer and he blurted out, he says, it's embarrassing to be sitting here with you. You spend days, weeks, even months in prayer. I'm lucky if I spend 10 minutes. Compared to you, I'm not very spiritual, I'm afraid. And she responded, oh, Mike, knock it off. First of all, you don't spend every day with me. You don't know me at all. You're comparing what you know about yourself to what you don't know about me. When comparing, we compare what we know about ourselves to what we see and what we assume about others. When we compare, we feel worse, right? We denigrate ourselves. That's kind of a self-hatred. Or if we don't come away feeling bad about ourselves, we find ourselves feeling like we're better than the other person. We come away feeling prideful and superior, richer, or cleverer, or handsomer, and that we're better than them, then there's the condescension. So it's best to just step off the comparison treadmill, because either way, we lose. 
pride, perhaps, the deadliest of the deadly sins, an inordinate, unhealthy, out-of-proportion love and attention to self bent into condescension toward and dismissal of others. So that's what pride is. What does pride do? Back to Lewis. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Just like a disease, like stupid cancer, pride can manifest itself and wreak havoc in any number of ways. So this little list isn't exhaustive, but here's a few things that pride does. First, pride isolates. Pride separates us from God, and it separates us from others. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the world's story. Adam and Eve created in perfect relationship with God. The tempter is yanking them around, using their pride, convincing them that God doesn't want them to be happy and that they know better than God. The idea pitched to them was, you will be like God. That's not a direct manipulation using pride. I don't know what is. You can be like God if you disobey his commands. You know better. You can do better. You are owed more. St. Augustine comments that pride made the soul desert God, to whom it should cling as the source of life, and to imagine itself instead as the source of its own life. Adam and Eve took the bait. The fall of humanity, sin enters the world. And not only does pride separate us from God, pride separates us from others. If Adam and Eve are sort of the paragon that pride separates us from God, then their kids, Cain and Abel, demonstrate that pride separates us from each other. Check it out in Genesis chapter 4, but the gist is this. Pride turns brother against brother, Cain kills Abel, and murder enters the world. Our pride may not lead us to murder, but it does kill our relationships. Pride turns us ever inward and ever against others, little by little, one by one, cutting us off from everyone. One commentator noted that pride leads us into isolation, for one cannot love when one is alone. A loveless life is a hellish life. When you live like you're the center of the universe, it won't be long before you're completely alone because you don't have the center of gravity to keep people revolving around you. And we fail to have empathy for others and we demean and we dehumanize them And pride oppresses. Pride oppresses. In our selection from Proverbs, we read chapter 30, verse 14. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor off the earth, the needy from among mankind. See, when we compare, we come out feeling better than others, and then they're seen as beneath us, and then people just become tools to use for whatever we're after. And then anyone like them is beneath us, and then entire classes of people or different kinds of vulnerable people we see is beneath us. They become other, less than human. We see this all over the place, right? It's in politics in this country, people calling each other names and deplorables and all kinds of different names, writing people off if they think different, sometimes using power to keep different people marginalized. Globally, we see it in scenarios like the Rohingya people being forced out of Myanmar, refugees and immigrants from any number of countries into any number of other countries, this othering and this oppression of people Different than us happens in all kinds of organizations and institutions. People become less than human and just tools to be used in our schemes. And sometimes it's even closer to home. Just this week, I was telling Quinn, our 13-year-old, that the two most oppressive places on earth are Siberian prison and the junior high lunchroom. I told her I've experienced one of those, and so I don't need to experience the other. Oddly, she assumed that the one I've experienced is a Siberian prison and asked me what I'd done. What'd you do? It was the junior high lunchroom, and it's awful. 
Our pride, our view of self as superior to other breeds oppression in others in our world. Thirdly, pride blinds. It's also in chapter 30, we read verse 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Right? Picture it, someone covered in filth. Have you ever been to the Renaissance Festival and God to the mud show? You probably have a picture of this. Imagine somebody covered in mud and filth, insisting that they are completely clean. Right? It's absurd, but that's what pride does. Jesus used a similar metaphor, calling the religious followers whitewashed tombs, looking good on the outside, thinking that all is well, but like tombs with bones and death on the inside. Pride makes it difficult, if not impossible, to receive advice or criticism, so we never grow and we never improve. We remain blind. We even have the expression blind spot, right? When you're driving, there are spots off of our shoulders where we can't see. Pride exponentially multiplies the blind spots in our life, because if we think we are spotless, then we're denying and we're blind to the mess. Pride blinds us. Fourthly, pride humiliates I think this is probably the most famous proverb in the whole book, Proverbs 16, 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, or as it's often simplified even in our culture, pride comes before a fall. You know, and as we read, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. There's a little story that Jesus tells that has got to be a riff off of one of the Proverbs from this morning. In Luke, it's Luke 14, uh, and as usual, Jesus is at a meal this time with some Pharisees. So the Pharisees and the lawyers are the ones hosting the meal. And he notices that all the guests are choosing the best seats for themselves, kind of jockeying and jostling for position around the table. And then Jesus tells this story. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down at the place of honor, right? Don't go and sit where the bride and the groom sit or whatever. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And then he who invited you both will come and say to you, um, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when their host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. You see the pride and humiliation at work here. Don't assume the best position. If you do, then there's some other more distinguished guest shows up and then you're going to get demoted and humiliated in front of everyone else. See the riff off of Proverbs 25, 6 and 7. We read, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And then Jesus in John 14 gives us this truth. He says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James says it in his epistle, quoting Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter says the same thing in his letter. It's all over the scriptures. Humble yourself or else it will be done for you or to you. You either humble yourself or you make a fool of yourself and you'll be humiliated. Pride comes before the fall. So pride isolates, blinds, oppresses, and humiliates. And it does other damage as well, but that's just a sampling. So how do we battle pride? How do we put pride to death? We just read it, right? I mean, it's through the great reversal, through humility. The humble will be exalted. Andrew Murray wrote, Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's the command. That's how we kill pride. Yeah, okay, you might say that's not super helpful. Just be humble. But like, how do you be humble? It sounds so simple. And it is simple, but it's not easy. A lot of things are simple, but not easy. 
Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography said, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. So let's finish up with three practices or habits that help us develop humility. First, confession. I don't know about you, but these deadly sins have been a, a bit of a gauntlet. We're on week five, and we might be feeling kind of beat up and bedraggled coming face to face with our sins each week. Sloth, gluttony, anger, lust, and now pride. And we still have a couple more to go. So what do we do with the fact that every week at church and daily when we read the scriptures and multiple times daily just by living and interacting with the world, what happens when we find ourselves not living according to what we believe, but actually doing things that we don't want to do? What do we do when we find our lives entangled in one of the seven deadly sins or any sins for that matter? Well, we confess. We confess our sins. I was reading an article on the Mockingbird this week about Ted Lasso in confession. It's sort of an odd combo, but it was called Confession is Such a Churchy Word writes Callie Yee. She says this, disclosing pain, shame, or sin can feel weird, unnerving, or arduous. Oftentimes, it's the last and only thing left to do, and confession almost spontaneously arrives unbidden. I like to think of those moments as the Holy Spirit taking an axe to my metaphorical tree of sin. The leaves are my withering patience, the branches my jagged cynicism of the world, the tree trunk my affinity for curse words. My bark is worse than my bite, pun intended. And the roots, my incessant need to be special. The whole tree comes crashing down and all that's left is a humbled stump. Confession is how the Holy Spirit takes an ax to our sin and turns us into a humbled stump, which I think is a good thing in that metaphor to be the humbled stump. And I've heard confession called a right relationship with reality. Acknowledging the reality of our failures and our shortcomings and sin, naming our sin, confessing it. J.C. Ryle describes it this way, the root of humility is right knowledge. The man who really knows himself and his own heart, God and his infinite majesty and holiness, Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. He will count himself like Jacob, unworthy of the least of all God's mercies. He will say of himself like Job, I am vile, will cry like Paul, I'm chief of sinners. Ignorance, nothing but sheer ignorance, ignorance of self, of God, of Christ, is the real secret of pride. From that miserable self-ignorance, may we daily pray to be delivered. He is the wise man who knows himself, and he who knows himself will find nothing within to make him proud. Disclosing our sin can feel awkward and weird and arduous, but what's the alternative? We keep it inside. We essentially live like liars. We double down, and it eats us up. The way to be free, to grow, is to confess. And here's the good news. This is from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. An expression that we even use for confession is to come clean. Right? That's what's offered to us in the gospel, the way to cultivate humility and be killing pride is to be honest and confess our sins, how we come clean. We don't have to be ashamed to confess our sins because God is faithful. God is just and he forgives our sins. Jesus took care of them and he cleanses us from them. Remember the image of the prideful person who is filthy, 
yet claims to be clean. Yeah, we actually can be cleaned up by our merciful God, but it means acknowledging that we are a mess, which isn't easy or comfortable or fun, but it's the way. Come clean. All right, the first practice to cultivate humility and kill pride is confession. Second is enjoyment. Practice enjoyment. It might sound a little weird, but here's kind of how this works, right? Jesus came that we might have abundant life, joy that overflows. If we're overflowing with joy and delighting in God, we're not going to be thinking about ourselves or the pecking order or whether we're better than someone else. We're just full, satisfied. We're caught up in something. You know, if we're singing with our church family and we've got tears streaming down our face or um, probably all had the experience of being at a sporting event like an FC Cincinnati game and our guys score and then the orange and blue smoke bombs go off and we're cheering and high-fiving anybody around. It doesn't matter if they're a stranger. We're just caught up in the moment. We're not thinking about ourselves at all. Or you're at dinner and you're sitting around the table with good food and good company and good conversation and you lose track of time. You're not thinking about yourself. You're caught up in the enjoyment of the moment. We stop thinking about ourselves at all and are just being ourselves. Enjoyment is a pride-withering practice. C.S. Lewis, one last time, he says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And you see it there, a humble person is just enjoying. They're just genuinely interested in the other person, cheerful, enjoying life easily. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And what did Josh say not too long ago about learning how to feast, really feast is the way that we combat gluttony, right? It's the same idea. So confession, enjoyment, third practice to root out pride is service. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he writes this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And as Jesus said, if you want to be great, you need to serve. And maybe the greatest example of that is in John chapter 13. Zach is preaching on this on Monday, Thursday, so we won't steal all of the thunder here, but it's what we now know was the Last Supper. For Jesus, for the disciples, it was a Passover meal. Jesus is about to be betrayed, captured by the authorities, accused of ridiculous charges in a kangaroo court, beaten mercilessly, and crucified. And yet, what is Jesus doing? Now, the disciples were keenly aware that someone needed to wash everybody's feet. The problem was... The only people who washed feet were the least of the servants, the lowest of the low, and the nobodies. So there they were, feet caked with dirt and Lord knows what else. No one willing to do the worst, lowliest task that had to be done before they feasted. It was such a sore point that nobody even was going to bring it up. Nobody wanted to be considered the least, especially in front of Jesus, especially at the Passover. 
And Jesus took a towel and a basin and he redefined greatness for all time. In the passage we just read in Philippians, every knee is bowing to Jesus. Here in the Gospel of John, Jesus' knees are bowed to his friends, serving, humbling himself, doing the job that nobody else was willing to do. Then, having demonstrated radical paradigm-shifting service, he told his disciples, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. And serving is how we grow in humility as well. Richard Foster wrote in his book, Celebration of Discipline, service is the spiritual discipline most conducive to the growth of humility. Now, we all kind of do our own washing of our feet nowadays. Um, we don't really wash each other's feet. However, we do have tasks and jobs that are less desirable, right? Probably all come to mind pretty immediately, stuff that we don't want to do, whether that's taking out the trash or doing the dishes or vacuuming or changing a dirty diaper weeding the garden, whatever the lowest, dirtiest, most onerous job in your mind, that task, serving in that way, is how you can develop humility. Now, the insidious thing about pride is that even those lowly, humiliating jobs can become means for us to be prideful. We can serve with eyes to be seen, with a sense of self-righteousness, in which case we're missing out on the formative aspect of serving. True service that forms us And humility finds no difference between the small tasks and the big tasks. It indiscriminately welcomes all opportunities to serve. The divine nod of approval is completely sufficient. Service is a way of subversively flipping the power structures of the world and giving a dose of anti-pride medicine to our souls. So confession, enjoyment, service. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Earlier, we read that story that Jesus told of the feast, the one where folks were taking the best seat at the table. And the feast, that the dinner party where Jesus told that story uh, was hosted by the Pharisees and the lawyers, the professional religious folks who had their stuff together. Yet also, there was a man there who needed some kind of healing. It says he had dropsy. So you have this mix of people who have their stuff together, the religious folks, but then you also have people who are in need, uh, physical need of healing. See, everyone is invited to the feast. From those who seem to have everything together to those who feel desperate and are a moment from falling apart. We sing a song here sometimes that says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness, fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Don't let your guilty conscience keep you from the table this morning. Let it be the reason that you come. Don't dream of being fit to come to the table, the only fitness that Jesus requires is to feel your need of him. Coming to the Lord's Supper is a radical act of humility. Right? When we come dragging, staggering, or running down the aisle, hungry for whatever Jesus alone can do for us, it's kind of like an act of war, going to battle against our pride. It's a proclamation that we are not self-sufficient, that we do not have what it takes, that we are in need As we come to the Lord's Supper, let's put into practice one of these humility-forming habits, confession. Pray in this prayer of confession together. If you would, join with me. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.